Police in Chesapeake, Virginia begin releasing the names of the six people killed in a shooting at a Walmart. The youngest victim was just 16. It's Thursday, November 24th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up as police search for a motive in the Virginia shooting, people mourn those who died. It's a lot to process, you know. These are people in our community whose lives were cut short the day before Thanksgiving. It's heartbreaking. Also this hour, the UN considers a special group to examine Iran's violent crackdown on protesters. Having a dedicated team that can do that and sort of put the imprint of an international independent investigative process is really key. And a conversation with Olivia Pichardo, the Brown University student who is the first female Division I college baseball player. Forecast says it'll be mostly sunny skies today, temperatures in the 40s. It's 7.01. First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Russia is pounding Ukrainian territory across the Dnieper River with artillery two weeks after retreating from the southern city of Kherson. In Kyiv, power was out for 70 percent of the city, according to the mayor. Healthcare facilities have not been spared. And the World Health Organization's European director, Hans Klug, is speaking out against Russian strikes on healthcare facilities. Touring several hospitals in the city of Dnipro, Klug told this is a very clear breach of international law. Health should never be a target. He called the Russian attacks a clear breach of international law. As a medical doctor myself, I am so saddened and actually outraged to see that those attacks on health and healthcare facilities continue. The Russian attacks cut off power to major regions, including Kyiv, Odessa, Kharkiv, and Lviv. Parts of neighboring Moldova also lost power. President Biden and his family are in Nantucket for Thanksgiving, a Biden tradition. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, there will be lots to talk about as the family gathers. President Biden says he plans to run for re-election in 2024, but he also says he respects fate and will make the final decision about his political future in conversation with his family. I hope Jill and I get a little time to actually sneak away for week around between Christmas and Thanksgiving. <laughs> and my guess is it'd be early next year we make that judgment. Biden's decision to run in 2020 came after a family meeting called by his grandchildren. Biden says he isn't in any rush to make his candidacy official, even if former President Trump has already launched his campaign seeking a rematch. Former President Obama didn't launch his reelect until April, the year before the 2012 election. So there's time. Tamara Keith, NPR News. China yesterday reported a record number of COVID-19 cases for a single day this week. More than 31,000 cases in cities across China, the country's worst surge since the pandemic began. NPR's Emily Feng reports. The daily numbers are even higher than the early days of Wuhan, the Chinese city where COVID-19 first appeared in humans. Just this month, China refined certain aspects of its otherwise strict zero-COVID policies. But that move was followed by a sharp rise in cases, and Beijing reported its first COVID deaths in six months this week. Now, authorities are resorting to old methods to bring cases down nationwide, with mass testing, lockdowns, and forced quarantine of tens of thousands of people at once in government facilities. China's COVID numbers are still low, however, compared to other countries. The U.S. continues to average more than 40,000 new cases a day. 
Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei, Taiwan. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. The site of the first Thanksgiving in the country is upholding the tradition again this year with events this holiday. Malka Benjamin is the acting director of historic sites for the Plymouth Patuxet Museum. She says the thir- first Thanksgiving was a celebration of gratitude for both pilgrims and the Wampanoag people and will be recreated this year. You're going to meet the colonists actively preparing to celebrate their harvest. They're going to be roasting all kinds of meat, cooking foods that we think were on the table at the first Thanksgiving. You might be invited to join in merriments, games, dancing, singing. The Thanksgiving celebration at Plymouth Patuxet will run through the weekend. Some people might show up for Thanksgiving dinner today with a sniffle, a cough, or worse. Adam Frenier reports medical experts say if that sounds like you you may want to rethink your plans. COVID-19 is still out there, although case rates statewide are much lower than this time last year. The flu is on the rise, and instances of the respiratory disease known as RSV have spiked this fall, especially in children. Joanne Levin is Medical Director of Infection Prevention at Cooley Dickinson Hospital in Northampton. She says people feeling under the weather should protect their loved ones. So we know COVID can have relatively... Mild symptoms in many people, so if you have a new runny nose, new sore throat, new cough, fever, stay home. It's a bummer, but stay home. Levin says even if you are feeling better, people can remain contagious for several days after getting sick. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Frenier. The commuter rail is not expected to see any impact if there is any kind of national railroad union strike. Some of the largest rail unions rejected a deal negotiated by the Biden administration and Labor Secretary Marty Walsh. Now they are considering a strike for the first time in a century. Keolis, which operates the commuter rail, says while it doesn't expect any problems, it will monitor the situation. New Hampshire wildlife officials hope the death of a Massachusetts hiker serves as a warning for people to be prepared if they set out to hike this winter. The body of Emily Sotelo was found yesterday in Franconia. She was from Westford and yesterday would have been her 20th birthday. Her family says she was an experienced hiker but set out alone last weekend, not equipped for the cold weather and snow. It's 7.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help put joy on every plate this holiday season. Donate at gbfb.org WBUR. In sports, Celtics beat the Dallas Mavericks 125-112 to last night at the Garden. Bruins lost on the road last night. They fell to the Florida Panthers 5-2. to And the Patriots are in action tonight as they visit the Minnesota Vikings. At the Men's World Cup this morning, Switzerland beat Cameroon 1 to nothing. Later today, Uruguay plays South Korea, Portugal takes on Ghana, and Brazil faces Serbia. In the forecast, it will be mostly sunny and cooler today. Temperatures in the mid-40s. Clouds moving in late tonight, lows dropping to the upper 30s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with rain the second half of the day. Highs in the low 50s. Saturday, sunny again. Highs in the upper 40s. And Sunday, mostly cloudy. Rain in the afternoon. Highs in the mid to upper 50s. Right now, it is 29 degrees in Boston at 707. WBUR supporters include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Los Angeles, California. The city of Chesapeake, Virginia is reeling on this Thanksgiving Day from the mass shooting earlier this week at a Walmart. The city released the names of five of the six people killed. Authorities, though, are withholding the name and photo of the sixth victim, a minor. Police identified the shooter as a 31-year-old Walmart employee. He died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. This was the third mass shooting in Virginia in just two weeks. Reporter William One has been tracking developments for The Washington Post. Uh, William, what more can you tell us about the victims? Yeah, well, we've been learning a lot about um, about them. It's quite sad, you know. Um, you know, we talked to the mother of Lorenzo Gamble. You know, he's 43 years old, Was a, has a long time been a janitor at this Walmart. He was getting ready to make cake and banana um, pudding for his family. His mom said um, he had two sons. They were going to have 16 family members total at their Thanksgiving dinner. And she was telling him, you know, you got to cook more. Um, It's going to be a lot of people. And she talked about, you know, going into his house um, yesterday after everything happened, you know, making his bed, straightening his things and seeing the ingredients for that banana pudding cake on his kitchen and knowing he'd, he'd never be there to make it again. There was also Kelly Pyle. She was a young grandmother at age 52. Um, she had two grown children and a two-year-old granddaughter she was going to spend Thanksgiving with um, and really was looking forward to that and had just gotten engaged again with her high school sweetheart. Just story after story of these victims, real people who had plans, you know, in their life that are cut short now. Yeah, that's that's just awful. Um, what have you learned from the people who were inside the store when the shooting happened? Yeah, I talked to um, a few of these workers who were just really shaken up. I talked to Donia Priolo, she um, is on that overnight stocking crew that works at Walmart. You know, the shooting happened at around 10 at night. And so this is the crew that, you know, refills the shelves every night at the store. What they described is the shooter, you know, he is a supervisor at that Walmart and a team lead is what they call it. And so they describe him just walking into that break room where they are all kind of gathered making plans for the weekend and uh, just started shooting. They describe it going, you know, hearing this pop, 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 and uh, the weird vision that seems surreal to a lot of them of just coworker after coworker falling on the ground. We know a few things, like it was a handgun. He shot many people. It seemed to begin from outside the store and, and culminated in that break room. One more thing really quick, uh, William, third mass shooting in Virginia in about two weeks. I mean, how are, how are people there handling things? It's just, um, it's difficult. Just, you know, 10 days ago, I was covering the University of Virginia shooting. There's a lot of people shaken up. There's talk of policy change, but there's always talk of that as well. Um, it's hard right now, I think, especially with holidays. That's Washington Post reporter William Wan. Thanks a lot, William. Thank you. Let's hear next from Democratic State Senator L. Louise Lucas of Virginia. The tragedy in Chesapeake is in her district. Uh, Senator, before we get to gun control, I just want to know how Chesapeake is, is coping on this Thanksgiving Day. Well, you know, holidays are really tough for some people anyway. And right now we have our readiness is in mourning because first when it first happened, people were in shock. They were just couldn't believe that it had come so close to home. And then once 
the reality set in after the names started being released. People were in mourning. People are sad. People are fearful. Uh, I purposely went out to three uh, supermarkets on uh, Thanksgiving Eve just to kind of get a sense of how people were feeling. People were rushing around still getting prepared for the holidays, but clearly in their minds was the tragedy just that just happened in Chesapeake. And so people are mourning. I mean, people who didn't know any of these uh, individuals or the, any of the victims are mourning. Uh, as I was walking through the, sh- the, the, the uh, different malls, people were saying, this is such a tragic thing. When are we going to do something about uh, gun violence protection? And, and that's just clearly what's on the minds of people that I've had an opportunity to speak to. They are fearful for their lives because nobody knows where the next incident is going to happen. So we are a region that's in shock. We're in mourning. It's a tough time because, as I indicated earlier, holidays are tough enough for some people. And to have this tragedy on top of all of that is just un- unimaginable. And so on that, on solutions, because Virginia has had an awful run of shootings just in the past couple of weeks. You've said that the only real solution to mass shootings is gun control. And Democrats in your state, uh, Senator, were able to do that in 2020. You're able to tighten control, uh, gun control. But now uh, Republicans control the House and the governor's office. So how possible is that now? Well, I'd like to refer to it more as gun violence prevention Gun violence prevention is the operative term for us because in order to get there, we have got to, we've got to get a grip on how we limit access to firearms to people who should not have them. Based on just some of the reports that we've got from the state police, we realize that once criminal history background checks are done, that there's a significant number of people who fall out who should not have, these, should not have firearms. And as a matter of fact, they've been denied uh, a permit to, 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 to carry. And as a matter of fact, a, a good number of those people who come up on that register also are in line for arrest because they know they should not even be trying to purchase a firearm. And so we've tightened the reins on firearm uh, prevention, violent prevention, but we need to do so much more. Uh, the bill that I introduced uh, for universal background checks needs to be tightened up. We need to do something about um, uh, firearms of mass destruction. And so there's so much more that we can do. And even President Biden said with what he has presented, uh, it just doesn't go far enough. So what we need to do is have legislators finally come to the reality that they are sitting back, allowing their constituents to be killed in these mass shootings because of our failure. When I say our failure, I'm talking about all elected officials to do something to curb or curtail this violent and uh, violent streak that we're experiencing. So, Senator, Not real quick, you, you mentioned. You mentioned President Biden. I know that earlier this year, Congress passed the first bipartisan gun control bill in decades. And poll after poll shows that Americans favor most of its provisions. Um, Given a level of support like that, why do you think there is so little lawmaking on this? Uh, Just about 30 seconds, Senator. Okay, it is because of the, the, the legislators themselves. They just don't have the backbone, the spine to stand up to the NRA and do what's necessary just to even save the lives of their constituents. And, 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 and again, President Biden has done a great thing, but he needs the support of his uh, of, of other elected officials. That's Virginia State Senator L. Louise Lucas. Uh, Senator, happy Thanksgiving to you and your family and your community. We'll do the best we can. Thank you so much.
Over the coming weeks, we're hearing from young adults living in multi-generational households, people in their 20s and 30s living with their parents and grandparents. For many families, it's a cultural tradition. It's a custom that's also broadened in recent years. To understand why, let's hear the story of one woman in Houston. Here's NPR's Claire Murashima. Growing up in Houston, Jennifer Moreno and her dad often butted heads. He was always in survival mode, and she was more level-headed. He'd get frustrated when she'd translate his Spanish for others, which she had to do frequently, when she was paying the renter's insurance, for instance, or handling her brother's social security paperwork. Jennifer went away for college, but moved home after graduating. Then, her grandmother started staying with the family intermittently. Before Jennifer's grandmother died, she told stories about her son, Jennifer's dad, that he'd never shared. He's not just my dad. He was also, you know, somebody's son. He was also somebody who grew up in rural Mexico and had all these random adventures that I didn't realize he had. Learning about his past has helped them form a deeper relationship, and it helped Jennifer and her dad finally see each other as adults. And that's a big deal to her because living with her parents is about more than just housing. It's her full-time job. Jennifer's 29 and looks after her brother, who was diagnosed with autism late in his childhood. After her mom had a fall at home, Jennifer also became her full-time caregiver and took over her duties as a head of household. She makes sure everyone's awake in the morning, cooks them dinner every night, and everything in between. On top of that, that's Jennifer warming up her vocal cords for one of her side hustles. When she's not looking after her mom and brother, she freelances as a writer and translator to help make ends meet. Her family lives paycheck to paycheck. Natasha Pilkowskas is an associate professor of public policy at the University of Michigan. She studies children living in multi-generational households. In terms of multi-generational households, the kind of people who tend to live in them tend to have fewer economic resources. It's also much more common amongst non-white families. These setups are also higher among immigrant families like Jennifer's, whose parents both came to the U.S. from Mexico. It's very surprising to me, in some senses, that it hasn't kind of plateaued so far. A 2021 Pew Research study found that one in four Americans live in multi-generational households, which they define as two or more adult generations living under the same roof. It's been on the rise for the past 50 years, and this trend is growing fastest among those between ages 25 and 34. Jennifer was never explicitly asked to look after her mom and brother. It's kind of like they avoided the subject because they didn't want to force that idea on me. They were just kind of hoping that I'd willingly take care of them. Pew also told us that almost a quarter of people 25 to 34 living multigenerationally say that caregiving is a major reason for their living arrangement. At the end of the day, I took on the role because I felt like that's what I had to do uh, in terms of... I'm the only person my mom trusts with her care, and it seemed really mean to not be there for her. So, until the day comes when they no longer need her care, Jennifer is staying put in her parents' home. Claire Murashima, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, a conversation with the Brown University student who has become the first female Division I college baseball player in the country. That's coming up. Time is 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, 
wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. And Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. The fog of war, an impenetrable tangle of red tape, and how an Afghan interpreter, with the help of his friend, a U.S. Marine, cut through the chaos and escaped Kabul just before the city fell to the Taliban last year. We'll hear their story and their view of what's happening in Afghanistan now. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join us on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In the forecast, it'll be mostly sunny skies, but cold today if you're doing any morning Thanksgiving runs. Uh, There are quite a few around the state, but it will be cold. Highs only in the mid-40s today, only about 29 degrees right now. If you're warming up for, say, the 23rd annual Braintree High School Athletic Association 5K that gets underway in about 40 minutes, it will stay in the lower 30s for you. Increasing clouds tonight, lows dropping to the upper 30s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy. Rain in the afternoon, highs in the low 50s. Right now, 29 degrees again here in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people sleep well so they can live well. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. Olivia Pichardo from Queens, New York, is a freshman at Brown University. Now, that achievement alone is impressive, but Pichardo has made it historic. She's the first woman to make the roster for an NCAA Division I baseball team and will be suiting up for the Brown University Bears in the spring. Pichardo has been playing baseball with and against boys since she was five. I got a chance to speak with her this week about the challenges and encouragement she's felt from collegiate baseball camps in the eighth grade to her acceptance to an Ivy League school without a sports scholarship. Brown is the school that also most fit me academically. So I got in on my own. And then for the other schools that I had offers for, They had very good baseball programs, and the coaches all really valued me as a person and as a player, but I just had to make that tough decision of thinking about my future career options. Your dad put you in collegiate baseball camps in the eighth grade. When was the moment when you're at these camps when you're thinking, you know what, maybe I can do this? At these camps, there are a lot of eyes on me from the coaches, the parents, and also the players, hearing their reactions whenever I did the most mundane things. (laughs) That was pretty crazy. And then during the actual games, I would get extra base hits and get a lot of cheers, (laughs) more so than when other players would do it. And every year, I just kept getting better. So let's be clear here, Olivia. You're outperforming boys at these camps, right? 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you think the cheers were coming from people who maybe didn't expect what they were seeing out of you? Yeah, I think that there is definitely a lot of surprise because it's not very common to see a girl playing baseball, much less at the collegiate level, which is what I was trying to do at those camps. Did anyone ever try to maybe discourage you or maybe make you think, well, okay, don't count on this, Olivia. I don't, I don't know if, if this is in the cards for you. Countless. <laughs> like, a lot throughout all of my baseball career. It's like every time I progressed to the next level, more and more people would ask me about maybe switching to softball. And I mean, there's no shade towards softball, but it's just that I've never played softball before. Even um, some former coaches of mine are, were just like, oh, well, season's over, so that was a great baseball run for you. And yeah, just like focus on academics now. It just feels very good to know that they also know that I'm doing this. So these people would actually basically close the door on you, right? I mean, that's that's essential what they're saying, right? It was a nice run, Olivia, you know, nice, uh, you know, run for what you were able to do. They were essentially closing a door on you. Yeah, exactly. So how did you react to that? I remember what people say to me, like, I'm not going to snap back at you, but my actions are just going to prove otherwise. Your coach at Brown called what he saw out of you the most complete walk-on tryout that he had ever seen from a player since the time he became a head coach. So what do you think impressed him the most? What comes to mind immediately is when I was doing my infield evaluation and I was at shortstop and he hit a ball up the middle towards second base and I made a forehand catch and did like a spinny move and made a perfect throw to first base. So I was just trying to show off my athleticism, show that, you know, I have my smooth mechanics. And um, I think that that was probably pretty impressive for him. When I saw the headline of, of what you accomplished, I got really excited when I saw your position listed as utility, which means you're going to be at short, at second, in the outfield, and maybe even pitch. What do you think you'll be your biggest challenge playing Division One baseball? I would probably say not allowing the moment to get too big and trying to really just about the my mentality. I think that might be probably the biggest challenge for me. I would bet a lot. Olivia, that, that you're a hero and a role model. Has anyone reached out just to try and make contact with you? Yeah, a lot of the other girls who I know who play baseball have reached out to me on Instagram DMs, and I've taken the time to go through every single one of my DMs that congratulating me and making sure that I get back to all of them. So it definitely, it feels very good to know that I'm now opening up this door for them. My reason for playing baseball isn't to be a pioneer, but just by me doing this, it by default, it makes me a pioneer. So it's definitely a strong motivator for me to keep going and to be my best. Are you worried at all over negative reactions? How have you thought you might handle that? Um, I've already dealt with that to be honest, not on a stage as big as this one, but I have pretty good tunnel vision, which is not an invitation to test that, but um, <laughs> I'll have to see how I am in the moment, but I can probably say that I will not give 
much of a reaction and I'm not really yeah. worried about it very much. I mean, there's already lots of arguments going on on Twitter and Instagram, which I'm ignoring. So February 24th, the Brown University Bears, they open the season at Georgia State. Now, what you've done is real now, definitely. But I think that day, opening day for you, is when it, it'll get all really, really real. So how do you imagine that first at that might feel for you when you technically will make history again? I'm just going to focus on my breaths. Uh, don't let the moment get too big, even though the moment will be big. And yeah, just try to focus on myself and be in the moment. So I'm just going to give you a piece of advice as a broken down old baseball player. If it's a first pitch fastball down the middle, Olivia, just rip, just swing, try to pull it, do whatever you yeah. can to take that thing out of here. Okay. I will listen to that. That's Olivia Pichardo from Brown University, first woman to make it on an NCAA Division I baseball team. Olivia, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on Morning Edition, the U.N. considers setting up a group to examine human rights abuses by Iran's government as it cracks down on anti-government protests. Remember, while you're cooking on this Thanksgiving or waiting for dinner to be served, give us a listen. Check out WBUR on your phone or on your smart speaker. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Holiday Pops, helping you prepare for the most wonderful time of the year by unwrapping the magic of the Holiday Pops, December 1st through 24th, holidaypops.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Police in Virginia say the gunman who killed six people at a Walmart store in Chesapeake on Tuesday night was a manager at the store. Investigators believe the 31-year-old took his own life after opening fire on co-workers. Police are still investigating a motive for the attack. Those killed ranged in age from 16 to 70. Several others were wounded. Laura Fillion with member station WHRO reports on how some in Chesapeake are reacting to the attack. A brightly lit Christmas tree stands outside the sanctuary of Deep Creek United Methodist Church in Chesapeake. It's a stark contrast to the reason for the gathering inside. Reverend Ryan LaRock says many faith communities prayed last Sunday for the victims of recent shootings at the University of Virginia, two hours up the road, and in Colorado Springs. And we didn't know that today we would wake up to another senseless act of violence, way too close to home. We are weary. We are tired. We're exhausted. For NPR News, I'm Laura Fillion in Chesapeake, Virginia. The person suspected of carrying out last weekend's deadly attack at a gay nightclub in Colorado has been ordered held without bond by a judge in Colorado Springs. The 22-year-old made his first court appearance yesterday by video link. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Now is a good time if you're hitting the road to get somewhere for Thanksgiving. There are no slowdowns on the highways in and out of Boston. At Logan Airport, FlightAware says there are delays on just seven outbound flights so far. Amtrak reports no problems at South Station and a reminder the T is on a Sunday schedule. The holidays can come with ornaments, ribbons, and twinkly lights, and those things can also quickly become a chew toy for pets, possibly landing them in the ER. Jenny Ahrens reports on what people can do to keep their beloved animals healthy. A lot of holiday emergencies that vets treat involve removing foreign objects. That's according to the emergency department director at Central Hospital for Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Caroline McGuire says the hectic nature of the holidays makes it especially hard to keep pets out of trouble. So having a safe space that you know is going to be a place they can't get into anything can be really helpful. Also, do not give your pets human food, especially not buttery holiday treats. Fatty foods can cause problems with the pancreas and the GI tract. We also see a lot of problems when owners give their pets bones to chew on. So Dr. McGuire says always stick to pet food for your furry friend. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jenny Ahrens. Some seniors who live in public and affordable housing will enjoy a free holiday lunch today at the Hyatt Regency Boston Harbor. The nonprofit Little Brothers Friends of the Elderly is holding the in-person event after two after a two-year break during the pandemic. The organization's executive director in Boston, Nikki Schultz, says the goal is to create joy during the holidays. For those who may not have family in their lives or nearby or perhaps had a loss in recent years, it can be very lonely. And so part of LBFE's mission to relieve that loneliness, we make it a point to celebrate special occasions and holidays. Throughout the year, the nonprofit connects college students with older adults for social activities and classes on technology and art. The city of Worcester is encouraging visitors to support local businesses by offering discounted parking rates in the coming weeks. The initiative starts this Saturday with free parking in city-owned lots and garages. The city says parking will be offered for just $1 next weekend, including for Friday's Festival of Lights. It's 734. WBUR supporters include the ICA, with a powerful new work by Barbara Kruger, one of the leading artists of the time. You can plan your visit at ICABoston.org. In sports, Bruins' seven-game winning streak ended last night in South Florida when they lost to the Panthers 5-2. Bruins return home tomorrow to play the Carolina Hurricanes. Celtics topped the Dallas Mavericks 125-112 last night at the Garden. They'll host the Sacramento Kings tomorrow night. And tonight, Patriots will be in Minneapolis to face the Vikings. In the forecast, it'll be mostly sunny and cooler today. Temperatures in the mid-40s. Clouds moving in late tonight, lows dropping to the upper 30s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy. Rain the second half of the day, highs in the low 50s. Saturday, sunny again, highs in the upper 40s. And Sunday should be mostly cloudy with another chance of rain in the afternoon. Highs in the mid to upper 50s. Right now, 29 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages three and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. And from Clarivate, creators of the Ideas to Innovation podcast, an exploration into solutions designed to address the world's most complex problems. 
at clarivate.com slash podcasts. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. While young Iranians continue two months of street protests, the U.S. and other countries are looking at whether there are things they can do to support their demands for more freedom. The United Nations Human Rights Council is discussing it today in Switzerland. Beth von Scott, who heads the State Department's Global Criminal Justice Office, says that it's a step in the right direction. We know that young people are really in the lead here and that young people have borne the brunt of this crackdown. The Human Rights Council has not in the past really focused its attention in a laser way on Iran and the recent events have finally sort of woken that institution up. But what can the international community really do? Joining us to talk about all this is NPR's Michelle Kellerman. All right, Michelle. So first of all, tell us about this meeting in Geneva and what's expected. So the plan is that th- that they'll set up a group that will kind of sift through the evidence of human rights violations and gather material that could eventually be used in trials against Iranian officials. Um, you know, these protests began over the death in custody of a young Iranian woman back in September. And activists say several hundred Iranians have been killed since then, including many teenagers. Thousands have also been arrested. There are reports of torture and execution, lots of online video evidence. Evidence. An Iranian-American human rights lawyer, Gisunia, told me that a U.N. fact-finding team could help verify these videos and reports. Take a listen. Having a dedicated team that can do that and sort of put the imprint of an international independent investigative process is, is really key in my view. And she says that would give the world a clearer picture of what's happening in Iran and can help shape the international response. The U.S. and and Europe have also been imposing sanctions on Iranian officials that are involved in the crackdown. Is there any more they can do? Yeah, there there were actually more names added to a U.S. sanctions list just this week, and that will likely continue. There are also some other kind of more symbolic things that can be done to isolate Iran diplomatically. Uh, Many Iranian women and their supporters abroad want Iran kicked off the U.N. Commission on Women, for instance. The U.S. says it's working on that. There's going to be a meeting in New York in early December to discuss ways to get Iran off that commission or at least suspended from it. But most of these things are, what, symbolic? So why do more. Well, you know, the the U.S. is working with tech companies, for instance, to help Iranians communicate with each other and get around Internet restrictions. There's always a danger, though, that this kind of direct support could backfire and put protesters at even more risk um, because Iranian leaders always accuse the U.S. and Israel of fomenting unrest in the country. They call these uh, protest riots. And activists say that's one reason why it's important to bring these issues up at the U.N. and get non-Western countries on board to press. Iran. Now, before the protest, the big question was whether the U.S. and, and other world powers uh, and Iran would revive the uh, Iran nuclear deal, and that's aimed at preventing Iran from making nuclear weapons. Um, where does the nuclear diplomacy with Iran fit into all this? Well, Iran's been making major advances to its nuclear program, and the White House says it's watching all that with deep concern. The U.S. still thinks the best way uh, to contain Iran's nuclear program is through diplomacy, but it says Iran has been adding too many demands, and the world's focus now is on the protesters. All right, that's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Michelle, thanks. Thank you. 
Brazil, one of this year's favorites to win the World Cup, plays its first match later today. Now, fans at home are not sure about sporting the team's national jersey, which during the recent contentious presidential contest became synonymous with Brazil's far-right president. NPR's Kerry Kahn has a story. It's become a familiar sight at marches and rallies of the nationalist supporters of Brazil's president, Jair Bolsonaro. Nearly all wear the canary yellow soccer jersey and wave the national flag. Symbols, they say, are emblematic of their movement led by Bolsonaro. The right-wing leader who narrowly lost last month's re-election bid left the country deeply divided. He's claiming fraud and his supporters are still protesting and still wearing the jersey. That's why some sports fans like Vanessa Morales says they won't wear the jersey, even while watching the national team possibly win a hexa, a sixth World Cup title. She doesn't want to be confused with a Bolsonaro party supporter. A party that ended up taking over our T-shirt. She says it's sad not being able to wear it anymore. Instead, she'll wear her local red Flamingo Teams T-shirt, like she's doing at a recent parade in Rio de Janeiro. She says hopefully in the new year when Luis Inácio Lula da Silva takes office, Brazilians will wear the national soccer jersey once again. Lula's supporters aren't waiting that long. They've created their own version of the famous jersey, says vendor Renato Monteiro, making brisk sales in an outdoor market in Rio de Janeiro. Nós resgatamos o símbolo da nossa pátria. Monteiro says we've rescued our homeland from Bolsonaro with the jersey-style t-shirt. It sports a picture of the bearded president-elect on the front and Lula's election candidate number 13 on the back. It belongs to the people and we've taken it back, he adds. And profits aren't bad either. He says he sold 20,000 in the run-up to the World Cup. But Brazil's soccer confederation wishes the country would just put politics in the past. It's running this ad with its own take on a popular Brazilian song, encouraging pride for the old Amarelinha, the yellow shirt. Come on, Brazil. Come on, yellow shirt, it goes. One of the country's biggest beer companies is hoping to focus on soccer and, of course, alcohol consumption, too. But these three soccer fans who've come to celebrate at their local team's recent parade say political reconciliation is possible. One voted for Lula, one for Bolsonaro, and one abstained. Look, says 40-year-old Leandro Cojera, the election is over. If we can come together all under one color yellow, then the country can. It's time to unite Brazil. Although he jokes, of course, that will be way easier if Brazil wins the World Cup. Kerry Kahn, NPR News, Rio de Janeiro.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, a unique home recipe this Thanksgiving as one Arkansas woman takes us through her beef picadillo. Then next hour, why the USO is quietly closing some of its hospitality centers but opening others in some of the military's most remote locations. In the forecast, it'll be mostly sunny today, temperatures in the mid-40s. Mostly cloudy skies tonight, lows only dropping a few degrees to the upper 30s. Tomorrow, cloudy skies with rain for much of the day, highs in the low 50s. Saturday, back to sunshine, highs in the upper 40s. Right now, it is 31 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. Now business news. Boston-based Liberty Mutual is considering selling its businesses in several European countries. Bloomberg reports the insurance companies working with Bank of America on the possible divestments from Spain, Portugal, and Ireland. If the company decides to move forward, some experts estimate a deal could fetch more than a billion dollars. Watertown-based Via Separations will receive nearly $10 million from the federal government. The money is part of a $100 million initiative to back clean energy innovation. The Energy Department says the money will allow Via Separations to show how to better decarbonize the manufacturing of pulp and paper products. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is encouraging people to shop local through a new holiday initiative called Meet Me in the City. The campaign's meant to shine a light on the holiday and winter activities happening in Boston. The mayor's office says the initiative will help drive more people into the city and in turn support the local economy. It's 745. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a nonprofit tackling the world's biggest sustainability challenges, including the climate and water crises. Help Ceres build a just and sustainable future for people and the planet. For Giving Tuesday, your donation to Ceres will be matched. Learn more at ceres.org slash WBUR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. Every family has that one dish, the recipe that takes you back to childhood. You know the one, the one that your mom has down pat and your grandma can make with her eyes closed. Well, starting this month, NPR is sharing your kitchen gems in a series we're calling All Things We're Cooking. We asked our audience to send us their special family recipes, and we're sharing those favorites and the stories behind them. This morning, we're starting with Miriam Armendariz Piccolo, who started sharing hearty bowls of picadillo with her mom. We spoke to her around the anniversary of her mom's passing, and she told us how she learned to make the dish with a little help from her tias. I'm Miriam Armendariz Piccolo. Right now, I'm living in Little Rock, Arkansas. I was born in Jalisco. We grew up pretty low income in Mexico. There's a reason why we had to immigrate to the U.S. We were unintentional vegetarians. We ate a lot of potatoes, beans, cactus, rice, very, very simple foods. So this is a picotillo dish. It is ground beef potatoes with chili sauce. My dad wasn't 
too big of a fan of it. My brother wasn't too big of a fan of it. So when we came to the U.S., if my mom was to make this dish, this was my dish. I knew she was making it for me. She was thinking about me some way, somehow that day. And it could have been because she was loving me or maybe angry at me or maybe I had disappointed her, but I was on her mind in some way. I never got the recipe from my mom. My mom was the one that would say a pinch of this and add some chilies. And she was so vague with it that I was like, I don't know what that means. So I had to text my aunts. I was like, how do you guys make picadillo? Cook up some ground beef in its own fat, peel and dice some potatoes, throw it in there, put the lid on. At the same time that you're doing this, reconstitute into boiling water, a couple guajillo peppers, like half a roma tomato, el diente de ajo, a clove of garlic, a little piece of onion, some oregano. You have to trust your hand because as we get older, our hand is gonna get seasoned. You're gonna learn whether to grab a pinch with two fingers or a pinch with all your fingers. And as you get older, that will come to you. Once that gets cooked up, puree it and add it to the potatoes and the ground beef. Season it and cook it till the potatoes are tender. Serve it with a squeeze of lemon, good hearty corn tortillas, and it will fill you up knowing that it really was made with love. You know, since she's passed, there's no news to update somebody about. You no longer share things about them. But I wanted to show my aunts that I'm still carrying my mom. You know, I still got her memories and her skills. Like, I'm still bringing them with me. That was Miriam Armendariz Piccolo sharing her mom's recipe for picadillo. To try out the recipe and others from the series, search All Things We're Cooking at NPR.org. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on Morning Edition, the author of the new book, The Creative Lives of Animals. The time is 7.50. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Japaigo, committed to delivering transformative health care solutions for women and families. Japaigo believes that where a person lives should not determine if they live. More at jhpie. Go.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. I'm Scott Tong. As the Soccer World Cup continues in Qatar, we hear from Pod Save America's Tommy Vitor. He hosts a special podcast exploring the criticism surrounding the competition. Corruption is endemic in, within FIFA, uh, and there's just enormous amounts of money sloshing around. Corruption in world soccer, next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In the forecast, it will be sunny and cold this Thanksgiving holiday, which you'll 
Want to keep in mind, if you're doing any of the Thanksgiving Day runs that are happening all around the state this morning, 23rd Annual Braintree High School Athletic Association 5K begins in just about nine minutes over at Braintree High School in an hour. There's the Boston Volvo Thanksgiving Day 5K in Brighton. There may be some road races uh, in the area around that as it starts at 9 a.m. So forecast for today, though, in the meantime. Mid-40s today, sunny skies, clouds moving in tonight, temperatures dropping to the upper 30s, cloudy with rain likely tomorrow, highs in the low 50s. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. When you think of undomesticated animals, what words come to mind? Maybe it's wild or even vicious. For author Carol Giliotti, the word is creative. In her book, The Creative Lives of Animals, she explores how animals think outside the box to face down challenges. So how does she define creativity? It is that someone, whoever it is, human, crocodile, elephant, creates something that is new and meaningful to them. And that has the possibility of being handed down to a group, to a species, to a culture. And then that also may happen to actually change the evolution of that species. Giliotti says creativity is too often used to suggest that humans are the superior species. I can't tell you how many times I've come across articles by scientists, other scientists, and people who say, oh, well, we are the best species because we are creative. And now you can say, nah. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what are some examples of this definition of creativity in, in animals? Well, I think one of the most fascinating ones is the birds of paradise live in New Guinea, and there are, I think, 51 species, and two biologists with Cornell Ornithological Lab went to actually tape all of those species, and what they discovered was that the females actually decide what they judge the males and what kind of dances and songs they do and also most beautifully how they negotiate their feathers and their incredible plumage to make the song or the dance really work so if you look at these images of these birds they're unlike anything you've ever seen before and if you go to cornell's site you will become addicted but what's interesting about in terms of the creativity is they practice these songs, the males practice these songs and dances for years at a time. And the female comes and looks at it and eh, it's okay, goes away. <laughs> so the, the point is, is that over time, the females have actually been involved in the creativity because they've been the ones who have judged whether they thought it was beautiful or not, and not whether this particular male was stronger or would be more competitive, but whether he was more beautiful and more creative himself. Yeah. And I think, Carol, you know, the funny thing is so I've seen these videos that you mentioned with these birds of paradise and it is beautiful and it is amazing. And I can't imagine that someone would look at that and not think that these animals are showing a creative side. There was another example that really struck me from your book, uh, Carol, about prairie dogs, their warning calls and how different their warning calls could be from region to region. That's really exciting. Uh, the person who put prairie dogs on the map was Khan Slobachikov. 
who has a book called Chasing Dr. Doolittle. And Dr. Stavlachikov, I interviewed, and what he did was to study prairie dogs for years and years with his students and demonstrate and document their language, which has a syntax, you know, separation of words and actually being able to say, well, this is the object and this is, but it means that those kinds of processes go on among animals. And the other thing he found was that there were very creative things that they did. The first time that they saw something that was different, it was an oval, a black oval, and they had a different warning call for that than they did for all the other predators. Hmm. The other funny thing about that I thought was really interesting was that um, they also could describe humans as not as a predator, but yeah, kind of, because they get really kind of worried about it. What kind of color the person was dressed in, how tall they were. So they actually describe them as they did other predators. So we're talking nouns and adjectives. I mean, we're talking sentence structure. And, and the funniest part about this is that dialects, there are dialects. So there's yes. a prairie dog maybe in Texas that sounds a lot different than a prairie dog somewhere else. Yes, yes. And, and you're right. That's And that happens with whales, the kinds of songs that uh, whales create in, you know, the Atlantic are very different from the Pacific. Though, at some point, sometimes those mix and somehow, you know, a song will get passed along and how that happens, they're not really sure. Now, there may be some surprise and skepticism that animals are displaying kind of an attitude instead of what, uh, you know, maybe just being perceived as ritualized behavior. So why do you think, Carol, is it so hard for humans to to see or acknowledge that animals might be more capable than we think they are? Well, I think that answer is pretty clear. I think that we have used animals in many ways, eating them, wearing them for clothes, you know, making them work for us. They've always, and, and maybe not always, but they have been useful to us. And I don't think we're, many people are not ready to give that up. And I, I do think that the human has the ability to sort of push things aside if it's not good for them. <laughs> and with animals, I think that's really easy to do, which is why I have believed this for a long time, but I supported every single thing I wrote in the book with research from scientists who actually spent time with animals. And, you know, I think if you look at all the research being done and you look at the science, I think you will, I hope people will begin to understand that, yeah, maybe we should rethink our use of animals. Maybe we shouldn't eat them or maybe we shouldn't wear them. Maybe we shouldn't use them in experimentation. If they're that smart, emotional, have all these incredible qualities, Maybe we've missed the boat. That's Carol Giliotti. Her new book is called The Creative Lives of Animals. Carol, thanks. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Millions hit the road around the country in what is expected to be one of the busiest weeks for travel in years. It's Thursday, November 24th, and this is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on this Thanksgiving Day, how airlines have handled a huge crush of passengers rivaling pre-pandemic numbers. Very busy, flying over two million people a day. It's been two years or three years since we've had a normal Thanksgiving. Also this hour, what inflation could mean for the holiday shopping period over the next month, a critical time for consumer spending and the economy. Lots of people are going to be looking for bargains even more than they have in the past because their own income is being pressed by higher prices. And astronaut Christina Koch on what it's like spending Thanksgiving in space on board the International Space Station. Forecast is sunny, highs in the mid-40s. It's 8.01. First, this hour's news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Police in Chesapeake, Virginia, are investigating the motive of the Walmart employee who they say pulled out a handgun and opened fire on fellow workers Tuesday night. Six people were killed. Others were injured. Victims range in age from 70 to 16. NPR's Sarah McCammon has more. Chesapeake police say at least 50 people were inside the Walmart Supercenter when an employee began shooting, killing six people before turning the gun on himself. Outside the Walmart the next morning, Jeannie Griffith attached a handmade sign to her van, offering to pray with anyone needing support. What are those families going to do on Thanksgiving? What are they going to do at Christmas? It's going to be a while before they can heal and actually celebrate again. Sarah McCammon, NVR News, Norfolk. Russia says recent rocket attacks on Kyiv were part of high-precision strikes against Ukrainian military and energy infrastructure. As NPR's Charles Maines reports, Russia's version of events comes amid reports 10 civilians died in the Ukrainian capital alone. Ukraine and its allies insist the wave of Russian airstrikes on Ukrainian energy and water systems part of a Kremlin effort to terrorize Ukraine into submission as the country heads into the depths of winter. In a statement, Russia's defense ministry spokesman Igor Konashenkov said Russian rockets had indeed struck Kiev and other cities, but were solely targeting military and energy infrastructure. Konashenkov said that any civilian deaths or damage to homes were due to rockets fired by Ukraine's air defense systems. The ministry's explanation follows an emergency UN Security Council session in which Russia's ambassadors said the airstrikes would continue until Kiev adopted what he called a more realistic position at the negotiating table. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. In Switzerland today, the United Nations Human Rights Council is discussing the situation in Iran, where young people have been protesting in the streets for two months. NPR's Michelle Kellerman says the UN is collecting evidence of possible human rights violations, but has been careful about offering direct support to the protesters. There's always a danger that this kind of direct support could backfire and put protesters at even more risk um, because Iranian leaders always accuse the U.S. and Israel of fomenting unrest in the country. They call these uh, protest riots. 
The protest began over the death in custody of young Iranian woman last September after she was apprehended by Iran's morality police for the way she wore her headscarf. Activists say several hundred protesting Iranians have been killed since then. Cryptocurrency custodial company BitGo says that so far it has managed to recover and secure $740 million in assets from failed cryptocurrency exchange FTX. Potentially billions are involved in the case. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. This is a special Thanksgiving for the Pine Street Inn. For the first time since the pandemic began, the state's largest homeless shelter provider is going to have Thanksgiving dinner indoors. And as WBUR's Josie Guarino reports, there are more surprises in store. The Pine Street Inn will serve 2,000 traditional Thanksgiving meals at its shelters and housing units. Plus, warm turkey sandwiches will be handed out to those who don't want to come indoors. Spokesperson Barbara Trevison says the agency values its volunteers who have been slowly coming back since the pandemic. We probably in the past, in past years before the pandemic, had about um, 100 volunteers over the course of Thanksgiving Day. And this year we, we might have maybe a quarter of those. But Trevison says there are enough staff to serve the dinners and make it a memorable day with special guests that include Mayor Wu, Senator Markey and Bruins defenseman Charlie McAvoy. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. The 53rd annual National Day of Mourning begins at noon today in Plymouth. The United American Indians of New England say the day serves as a reminder of the slaughter of millions of indigenous people and the theft of their lands by European colonists. Keisha James with the Aquina Wampanoag says the day will feature a prayer ceremony, speeches, and a march to Plymouth Rock. We discussed how this random rock that the pilgrims did not land on was dragged down from Plymouth Town Center and enshrined and what that means and what it means to have these material objects that link to American mythology. James wants the day of mourning to shed light on what she calls the truth of Native American history. A collection of South Boston political groups is working together to get the city's new political district map thrown out. The new map that was approved this month puts parts of Dorchester and South Boston into new districts. The groups are suing to stop the map from going into effect next year. The Boston Herald reports three city councilors have given their support to the legal complaint. More than 100 sea turtles have been rescued from the cold waters of Cape Cod so far this season. The Mass Audubon Sanctuary says those rescues happened within the last week. The sanctuary says if you spot a stranded sea turtle, do not return it to the water. Instead, you should give its 24-hour hotline a call. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Discover how Jean-Michel Basquiat, Paul Clay, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again. ICABoston.org. In sports, Celtics beat the Dallas Mavericks 125-112 to last night at the Garden. They'll host the Sacramento Kings tomorrow. Bruins fell to the Panthers 5-2 to last night in South Florida, ending their seven-game winning streak. They'll be back at the Garden tomorrow to skate with the Carolina Hurricanes, and the Patriots are part of this year's slate of NFL Thanksgiving games. They'll take on the Minnesota Vikings, kickoff at 8-20. In the forecast, it'll be mostly sunny and cooler today. Temperatures in the mid-40s. Clouds moving in late tonight. Lows dropping to the upper 30s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy. Rain the second half of the day with highs in the low 50s. 
Saturday, sunny again, highs in the upper 40s, and Sunday should be mostly cloudy with another chance of rain in the afternoon, highs in the mid to upper 50s. Right now, 31 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. For more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at Mott.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Ian Martinez. All right, so hopefully you got to your Thanksgiving destination safely and without too many hassles because the number of people traveling this week appears to be close to pre-pandemic levels. And that means long lines at airports and train stations, jam-packed planes and gridlocked roads and highways. NPR's transportation correspondent David Shaper is watching the roads and the skies to give us some perspective on Thanksgiving travel. David, I've been on quite a few planes the last couple of weeks. Uh, there has never been an empty seat anywhere on that plane. So are travelers and, and this travel season becoming more like pre-pandemic levels? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to flying in particular, travelers are definitely back. I mean, one airline industry official says this is the first normal holiday season in three years. The number of people flying between now and the start of the new year is expected to get very close to pre-pandemic levels, if not surpass pre-pandemic levels. Nick Calio, the head of the industry group Airlines for America, puts it this way. It's going to be very busy. We're going to be flying over two million people a day. And it's been a rough go. It's been two years or three years since we've had a normal Thanksgiving. What's interesting about this day is that airlines are actually flying fewer flights over the holidays this year than last year. It's 4% fewer flights and 13% fewer flights than in 2019, according to the air travel data firm Sirium. But at the same time, they're actually offering more seats. Okay, fewer flights, more seats. How does that work and, and how is it affecting airfares? Well, the airlines are just flying bigger planes while parking some of their smaller regional jets. It's just more efficient and economical to fly more passengers on fewer planes with fewer pilots. So this means there will be more seats available on routes between big cities, but it's going to be a lot more difficult to find flights to Grand Junction, Colorado, or Duluth, Minnesota, or other smaller markets. And across the board, capacity is very tight, and the airline's costs are up, so airfares are up substantially, 43% over last year and 15% above 2019 levels. Now, it used to be that yesterday, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving and the Sunday after were the busiest days uh, for the airlines all year. Is that still true? Yeah, I mean, it's those are still the two busiest travel days of the Thanksgiving period, but they're not as busy as they used to be. You know, like everything else, uh, post-pandemic, people are changing the way they travel. Mike Arnott of the airline data firm Sirium says, especially those who can work remotely, they seem to be spreading out their travel over the entire Thanksgiving week and beyond. Instead of trying to get back to the office on the Monday after Thanksgiving, maybe you can use that flexible work schedule that you have to pick the cheaper travel day, which will be, you know, the Tuesday or the Wednesday right after Thanksgiving. You know, this is a pattern we're seeing in other parts of the year, too, even with hybrid workcation trips where a business trip to one city on a Wednesday or Thursday might include a long weekend stay there, too. And now, over the summer, I remember several airlines had uh, meltdowns, operational meltdowns that caused a large number of flight delays and cancellations. Are the airlines now maybe better prepared for the holiday travel surge? The airlines say they're better prepared. They've been on a hiring spree, and as of August, uh, actually, they now have more employees uh, than they did before the pandemic, including 10% more pilots at the seven biggest airlines. 
They've significantly trimmed their schedules to match them more realistically to their staffing levels, so they say. Whether or not they have enough wiggle room for when bad weather inevitably hits or some other problems arise, that remains to be seen. David, what about the people that uh, don't want to fly and want to drive? What do the roads look like? Well, they're very busy. AAA estimates nearly 49 million people are driving for Thanksgiving, most of them leaving home yesterday, which gave us some of the worst traffic jams of the entire weekend. The mobility data analytics firm INRIX projects where the worst congestion will be and finds that there will likely be some pretty bad traffic jams on Sunday when many of us return home. And they're even predicting some heavy traffic on Saturday in a lot of cities as well. Now, meanwhile, the National Safety Council is urging drivers to be cautious, especially if, like me, you're in a part of the country that's likely getting snow. They estimate more than 500 people will die in preventable crashes on the nation's roadways through Sunday, and many of them due to intoxicated drivers. That's NPR Transportation Correspondent David Shaper. David, thanks. My pleasure, A. The USO, that iconic support organization for service members and their families, has quietly been closing dozens of its hospitality centers. But it's also opening others, including some of the military's most remote locations. Jay Price of member station WUNC reports. The 81-year-old USO is known for traditions like care packages, airport lounges for transiting troops, and celebrity entertainment tours. But it has modern challenges. Its budget is down, in part because the number of Americans and potential donors with ties to the military has been shrinking. And it's dealing with shifts in where troops are deployed and what they need in the digital age. We're trying to provide an impact in the places and for those service members that need us the most. USO Chief Operating Officer Alan Reyes says the changes are part of a long-range strategic plan. This year, it will close about 40 of those centers where troops can rest, grab a cold soda, play games, and watch TV, many of them at smaller domestic airports. But it's opening 28 new centers, several in places where stress is especially high. We do pride ourselves on the fact that we have, as a global organization, the opportunity to reach millions and millions of service members and families, but we want to make sure that we are reaching those that need us the most. And oftentimes they are in more remote locations. Many of the new centers are in Eastern Europe, where troops are deployed in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Other new sites include Fort Irwin and the Mojave Desert, and the military's most isolated installation, Thule Air Base in northern Greenland. So one that is fairly remote, away from a lot of creature comforts. And where temperatures can drop under 20 below, and there's total darkness for months each winter. The USO's mission is to boost morale by keeping service members connected with their families, home, and country. In short, it's a mental health organization. And uh, I could attest to that because I was dealing with depression. Sergeant Darian Wolf visits the bustling Fort Bragg USO almost daily. He was hanging out in a lounge area one recent day, sipping a Sprite, as other soldiers used computers, played video games, or just sprawled on a couch watching TV. Just coming here got me a chance to kind of get out of that, that mode, you know, kind of relax. It definitely feels like home, so that's why I kept coming back. He found the same comfort in Poland on a recent deployment. The 82nd Airborne Division soldiers had been ordered to leave their phones at home, but the USO provided secure call centers as well as its usual array of couches, games, and snacks. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, today we're at Long Bin, 17 miles northeast of Saigon. I don't care if Charlie is watching or I'm giving away military secrets. We're on live TV today, and we need the rating. <laughs> 
Bob Hope. You can't mention the USO without at least a nod to its most famous touring act. That was 1969, and Hope, who did USO shows for half a century, was performing for a crowd of thousands. The USO is still sending celebrities out on tour, but it's added another approach. And if you're a soccer fan or football, as they say in Europe, you're going to enjoy our guest today. That recent guest was U.S. soccer star Christian Pulisic. Instead of putting him on tour, the USO set up a live video appearance. We have two friendly matches coming up here next week to get us prepared for the World Cup. Pulisic in Germany chatted with soldiers in Turkey, Kuwait, and Qatar online, where Ray says young troops are used to spending time. That does not mean we're going to stop sending tours to bases and places as well, but we now have a way to serve in both capacities. The video meetups aren't the same as joining the crowd at a live USO show, but Reyes says they can be more intimate, allowing personal connections with the celebrities. And they still serve that USO mission, cheering up troops who are far from home. For NPR News, I'm Jay Price at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. For many Americans, Thanksgiving Day is often marked by what's on TV. There's the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in the morning, football in the afternoon, and don't forget the National Dog Show sandwiched in between. This is an exciting year for dog show lovers. Three new dog breeds have been approved by the American Kennel Club to compete in the show for the first time. David Fry co-hosts the show. We have the Bracco Italiano, uh, great athletic dogs. It's a beautiful dog. It looks very stately. It looks like a dog you should see in a painting of the Elizabethan era. Then there's a dog named the Russian Toy. They're wonderful little dogs. They weigh about four or five pounds. They're great athletic dogs. They can run uh, like you can't believe, like little rockets. So cute. And the third new breed is called a Moody. It's a Hungarian herding dog, a Hungarian farm dog that um, mainly watches after livestock. Uh, they're great little dogs, too. We don't see very many of them. There's, uh, there's a lot of them in Hungary, of course. So how do the American Kennel Club suddenly notice these three new breeds and then let them compete? They're not really new breeds. They've been, some of them have been around for hundreds or even thousands of years. They're finally recognized by the AKC because they have enough of them in this country. There are 194 breeds competing for this year's big prize. If it's tough to decide who to root for, Fry has some very simple advice. Stay loyal. If you're sitting on the couch with your Cavalier, you're going to watch for the Cavalier and root for the Cavalier. Uh, I call it the alma mater factor, that that's my dog in there. And and, uh, true, you and I should be rooting for them. The National Dog Show airs today at noon in all time zones. Coming up later today on All Things Considered, U.S. forward Tim Weah scored the only goal so far for the men's national soccer team in the World Cup. But ahead of today's U.S. soccer match against England, we look at why he isn't the most famous person in his family. To listen, stream NPR on your smartphone or computer, or just listen to us on the radio.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on Morning Edition, reflecting on family this Thanksgiving. Then, in 20 minutes, how masking became a habit in Mexico City despite no federal mask mandate ever being issued. The time is 8.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society. Performing Handel's Messiah with its Hallelujah Chorus tomorrow through Sunday at Symphony Hall, handelandhyden.org. And Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in medical, regulatory, and other groups at vrtx.com. The fog of war, an impenetrable tangle of red tape, and how an Afghan interpreter, with the help of his friend, a U.S. Marine, cut through the chaos and escaped Kabul just before the city fell to the Taliban last year. We'll hear their story and their view of what's happening in Afghanistan now. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join us on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In the forecast, it will be mostly sunny and brisk today, with highs only in the mid-40s, down in the lower 30s so far this morning, if you're doing any morning Thanksgiving runs. Increasing clouds tonight, lows dropping to the upper 30s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, rain in the afternoon, highs in the low 50s, and tomorrow or Saturday, rather, more sunshine, bit cooler, highs in the upper 40s. Right now, it is 32 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Rachel Martin, wishing you a very happy Thanksgiving. My siblings and their kids are all coming to my house for the holiday, and this is a big deal, not just because I have never in all my adult life cooked Thanksgiving for my whole family, but there is a new emotional weight to all of it. There's a big emptiness. This time a year ago, I was in a hospital watching my dad deteriorate after a sudden problem with his heart. He died a couple of weeks later. My mom's been gone for a long time. She died of cancer 13 years ago and never got a chance to meet my husband or my kids. When you lose your parents, the constellation of your family shifts. For me, it's like the stars at the center, the ones that guide you aren't there anymore, so you have to shift your view, look for light in other places. It's the same thing when family relationships break. You find love and acceptance from other people, friends, even strangers, which is to me what Thanksgiving is about, being grateful for the light wherever you find it, appreciating the family you have and the family you choose. We asked our listeners to share some reflections on how you think about family. Has that definition changed? Who brings you light? This is some of what you shared. Hi, this is Micah Caldwell in Chicago, Illinois. Over the past couple of years, my idea of family has changed quite a bit. 
When the pandemic hit, we decided to move back to the Midwest in order to be closer to our families. And with that transition came a lot of other life developments. Um, we were able to buy our first house, which has allowed us to create something of a family with our neighbors and our community. And it also allowed us to have our first child, which has really brought our families, our extended families, closer to us. And so it's felt like something of a reunion to be back in this place and to have this new little person in our lives. And I, I can't wait to experience all of these holidays and new experiences through her eyes. Hi, uh, my name is Aritro. I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, it does get tough during the holiday season. Even though I don't celebrate Thanksgiving, I didn't grow up with it. I would see people with their families on, on social media uh, or they would travel. But the fact of the matter is that my parents can't travel now because of COVID and visa restrictions and whatnot. So that particular time gets tough. I, I miss my family. I miss India. I miss the smell. I miss the sound. I miss the food. I miss the language. Um, but my idea of family has not changed. I think it's still uh, the people you call up when you're in trouble. Um, when I just moved to Minneapolis, I'd gotten a new bike and it was cold one night. I was riding it and I parked it somewhere and got stolen. And I was, I started crying. I was alone and I called up a friend and he showed up in 15 minutes and he drove me home and he consoled me. And I think that's what family is all about. My name's William. I currently live in San Francisco. I always felt like my family was my biological family. I think lately this concept has been changing or I've been challenging it. You know, I've traveled a lot. I've moved around a lot. I've also, my brother, he's, he's a substance abuser. And that has really had a, a very difficult impact on our family dynamic. You know, a lot of things end up being about him. And yeah, I went through a very difficult period of my life four years ago where I, I went through a divorce. I was married and I felt like I had a family. Yeah, I felt very, very loved. And after that, my my world, after when I had divorced, my world turned upside down and I felt very lost. And sometimes I do still feel very lost. My name is Matthew Diamond. I currently live in Philadelphia and I am a proud Uyghur American. I was adopted at the age of 13 by my American parents and family. Now I'm at the age of 26. My wonderful parents, you know, showed me so much love and really taught me and showed me what unconditional love was. When I was in the orphanage, the teachers and the workers there had asked me, did I want to be adopted? So in a sense, I did choose to be adopted and I chose my family, and my family, of course, chose me first. We don't have a lot of Uyghurs populations around the world, or even in the States. My birth parents, whenever I thought about them, kind of caused me, you know, pain and confusion. I do think about this, you know, what happened to my parents, where my birth parents are, are they okay in this world? Are they still alive? You know, that, that part of family, for me, is something I most likely would never know and it's it's just something you have to be okay with and it's you know I'm not okay with it but it's kind of like that saying you know it's okay to not be okay 
you just kind of have to s settle with that and I wish one day I will be able to see them and be reunited with them. Hello, my name is Rowan Morgan. Uh, this year and from here on out going forward, I will not be in attendance to any of the family gatherings that will be happening. Uh, I am no longer a part of that, and that's a decision that I've made for myself that has led me to become more mentally and emotionally well than I have ever been in my entire life. And the family that I have cultivated for myself in the place that I reside now uh, is more supportive and loving and fulfilling than I have ever before experienced. My little piece of advice is that um, you don't have to do anything or interact with anybody who makes you feel smaller than who you are. And it doesn't have to be an ugly separation. It can just be something that you say for yourself and you don't owe justification to anybody else. And the family that you do deserve will come to you. And I've experienced it firsthand. Reflections from some of our listeners about family on this Thanksgiving holiday, the ones we're born into and the ones we choose. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, online at WBUR.org. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on Morning Edition, how inflation could play a major role in holiday shopping this coming season, and some financial tips to help you stick to your budget. Remember, if you are looking for something to listen to while you're cooking today or just on a long drive, you can also check out WBUR on our WBUR mobile app. You can also visit WBUR.org for a list of seven of our podcasts worth a listen. That list includes cooking advice from Here and Now resident chef Kathy Gunst and a seat at the Friendsgiving table with some local celebrity chefs and the Radio Boston team. You can check it all out. At WBUR.org right now, the time is 8.29. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Police in Chesapeake, Virginia, say the gunman who killed six people at a Walmart store on Tuesday night was a manager at the store. He's identified as a 31-year-old who investigators believe ended the attack on his co-workers by taking his own life. William One is following the investigation for The Washington Post. The shooter, you know, he is a supervisor at that Walmart and a team lead is what they call it. And so they describe him just walking into that break room um, where they are all kind of gathered making plans for the, the weekend and uh, just started shooting. Those killed ranged in age from 16 to 70. Several others were wounded by gunfire. Police are still investigating a motive for the attack. Thousands of spectators are gathered along the streets of New York City for the annual Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. It gets underway at the top of the hour. Sam Lowe traveled to New York from Texas to see the parade. Oh, this is wonderful. This, you know, first time experiencing it live in person. This is wonderful. Uh, this is the start of Thanksgiving for us. 
There's a heavy police presence for the parade, though the head of the NYPD counterterrorism force says there are no known credible threats of violence at this year's event. There's no trading today on Wall Street because of the Thanksgiving holiday. This is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. So far, so good when it comes to Thanksgiving Day travel in and out of Boston. At Logan Airport, FlightAware reports just eight outbound flights with delays. All of the major highways are clear right now, and Amtrak reports no problems. A reminder today that the T is on a Sunday schedule with no ferry service. There are more house fires in Massachusetts today on Thanksgiving than on any other day of the year. State Department of Fire Services spokesman Jake Wark says most of them are the result of cooking, and he says there are precautions people can take. First and foremost, be sure that your oven is empty uh, before you turn it on. When you're cooking on the stovetop, remember to turn those pot handles inward. Uh, That'll help you avoid knocking a pan off of the stovetop, possibly burning yourself or or starting a fire that way. If you do have a stovetop fire, Wark says smother it with a lid or baking sheet. If there's a fire in the oven, he says keep the door shut and turn off the heat and Be sure to get out of the house and call 911 if the fire doesn't go out. Family gatherings are on the docket across the region on this Thanksgiving. WBUR's Amanda Beeland caught up with one Dorchester resident about what she is thankful for this year. For Leslie Kennedy, today is going to be an adventure. This is my first year being in charge of taking care of Thanksgiving dinner. Um, Let's pray for the turkey. Kennedy picked up that turkey this year from the Salvation Army's Croc Center. She says she's grateful for a lot of things after a tough few years. My mother caught COVID and my sister caught COVID and now they're long-term sufferers. So every year that we're able to sit down with each other, that's what I'm thankful for. Kennedy says she's cooking for 10 this year. Their one big request, make that turkey spicy and jerk-flavored. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. Governor-elect Maura Healey says her inauguration celebration will be paid for by private donations. Those donations from individuals and businesses will be capped at $25,000. Healey and Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll will be sworn into office on January 5th. The time is 8.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. In sports, Bruins lost to the Panthers 5-2 last night in South Florida. That ended the Bruins' seven-game winning streak. They'll be back at home tomorrow for a matinee with the Carolina Hurricanes. Celtics beat the Dallas Mavericks 125-112 last night at the Garden. The Seas will host the Sacramento Kings tomorrow night. And tonight in Minneapolis, the Patriots take on the Vikings. In the forecast, it'll be mostly sunny and cooler today. Temperatures in the mid-40s. Clouds moving in late tonight, lows dropping to the upper 30s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with rain the second half of the day. Highs in the low 50s. Saturday, sunny again. Highs in the upper 40s. And Sunday should be mostly cloudy with another chance of rain in the afternoon. Highs in the mid to upper 50s. Right now, it is 32 degrees in Boston at 835. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. 
More at DuckDuckGo.com. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. Now that it's Thanksgiving, we are well into the holiday season. But how does the current economic uncertainty impact our spending? I spoke earlier with Washington Post personal finance columnist Michelle Singletary for some tips and advice. The thing is, especially when the holiday comes upon us and they get in the store and a lot of those budget lists that they have kind of go out the door because they want to be generous. And so sometimes they overspend. We know that right after the first of the year, people have lots of regrets about how much they charge and how much debt they went into. Um, I think what is going to be different about this season, whereas people might wait to buy things to see if they're going to be more discounts because they know that there's a supply chain issue, they're going to be grabbing things as they see them. And that is smart because you don't know if that item is going to still be there as it gets closer to Christmas. And so even as my husband and I shop, we see something like we just bought a big tree, you know, artificial tree. And I said, baby, we better grab this now because we're not sure it's going to be here in a couple of weeks if we try to wait for it to be marked down. It's almost like a way to save money. That's just a great point because you don't know it could go down or it actually could go up. And remember, on the other side of that profitability are workers. And so even as we hunt for deep discounts, you know, just keep in mind that the deeper the discount, it could impact those people who are bringing your purchases up or stocking those shelves. If it's a fair price, I'm okay to get it now, even if I think if I wait, I could get it cheaper. Now, do you have any recommendations where people can score a deal? Because I think that's what a lot of people are waiting for, just that one great deal on something they've really, really wanted for a while. Yeah, I tell people do both in uh, brick and mortar and online. And so I will, you know, around the holiday times, I create a list. Now, my list starts with budget. How much can you afford to spend without going into debt? Don't start with listing the number of people you have to buy for, because that's how you overspend. So if your budget is 500 dollars, you start with that, and then you go online, you go in the store, and you sort of look and see where you can get the best deals. Because during the pandemic, we sort of all could get more things online, and we assumed it was cheaper, but that's not necessarily uh, true anymore. Michelle, I've been so proud of myself. I've been trying my best to hold off on buying sneakers until December. <laughs> my resolve is weakening. I gotta tell you that right now. But I thought, you know, I thought it was a good thing that I was holding off. Well, I mean, you could take the risk. So if it's an item that you don't have to have and it's a fun item or it's not a necessity, sure, go ahead and wait. But if it's something that your heart's desire and it may be in limited supply, I wouldn't wait. But if it isn't, you know, go ahead and do that dance that we all do with discounts by waiting. That's okay, too. How is this current economic situation in the country, especially high inflation, how is that affecting holiday spending this year? Well, I think lots of people are going to be looking for bargains even more than they have in the past because their own income is being pressed by higher prices and necessities like food and gas. Michelle, you know the American consumer. Are they looking for bargains as a way to limit themselves from spending or are they just going to find something to buy no matter what, <laughs> bargain or no bargain? 
I think there's going to be two types of consumers. There's those who've done well um, during the recession. And I know that sounds crazy, but they have their, you know, they saw increases in their stock portfolios. And then there are those who have definitely been pressed by the economy and they still want to shop. They still want to give, but they're very concerned about how much they spend. Michelle Singletary is the Washington Post's personal finance columnist. Michelle, thank you. You're so welcome. In Mexico, the federal government never issued a mask mandate. In fact, the president has rarely worn a mask. But in Mexico City, masks are still everywhere. Many residents wear them indoors and outdoors. NPR's Ada Peralta reports on why. On a crisp morning at a flower market in Mexico City, I notice about half of the people here are wearing masks. It's not crowded. It's mostly open air. But Reina Lopez, who's 74, is wearing a KN95. They tell us that the danger is over, she says, but it's not true. During the pandemic, she saw neighbors and family members die. She says this pandemic is not over. And who knows, maybe there's even some other virus lurking. And now we're protected. And on top of that, we're used to wearing masks. Across the market, we hear variations of the same thing. The government says drop the masks, but the fear lingers. Alejandra Miguel Perez says she wears a mask because she keeps hearing different things, that you're okay with the vaccine, that now there is a new variant that is dangerous. She's heard so much, she says, she doesn't know what to believe. Also, as the pandemic wore on, she noticed that the masks also protected her from Mexico City's pollution. Maybe we're stuck with masks, because if we don't get sick with COVID, we could still get sick from the pollution. Mexico suffered a lot during this pandemic. Officially, more than 300,000 people have died of COVID. To epidemiologist Alejandro Macias, that trauma explains why in Mexico City, masks are still worn even outside. It seems that people have suffered such a high degree of of disease that I think they are trying to do something. The Mexican government took a notably hands-off approach to COVID. They communicated best practices, but they didn't impose curfews or even a national mask mandate. And at the very top, the mood has always been relaxed. The president being very popular as he, he never used the, the, the face mask, but people use the face masks. Macias says a deep change has happened in Mexico City. Maybe, he says, it has become like Seoul, where citizens turn to masks when there are respiratory diseases or when there's pollution. And he doesn't see it changing anytime soon. At the flower market, I find Marcos Reyes in a corner breathing easy without his mask. The mask is uncomfortable, he says, especially because he works pushing hundreds of pounds of flowers on a hand cart. You need air, he says, and this mask makes it harder. He's from the countryside. No one wears masks there, he says, and few people got sick. Reyes says he hates wearing a mask. He's not even convinced it stops COVID from spreading. But at the end of the day, he says, 
We have to respect others. So out of courtesy, he's wearing one anyway. Ida Pralta, NPR News, Mexico City. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, what it's like celebrating Thanksgiving in orbit with astronaut Christina Koch. In the forecast, it'll be mostly sunny today. Temperatures in the mid-40s. Mostly cloudy skies tonight. Those only dropping a few degrees to the upper 30s. Tomorrow, cloudy skies with rain for much of the day, highs in the low 50s. Saturday, back to sunshine, highs in the upper 40s. Sunday, more clouds and rain likely with highs in the upper 50s. Right now, 32 degrees in Boston at 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales' Fuss Family Health Initiative a philanthropic and community service initiative dedicated to helping to ease the mental health crisis facing youth in under-resourced communities by raising awareness, reducing stigmas, and supporting the many young people who feel alone as they grapple with mental health challenges. Now business news. Holiday shoppers are gearing up to start spending, but unlike in years past, you might not see as many people camping out in front of big box stores tonight. As WBUR's Simone Rios reports, that's because retailers have already been offering Black Friday deals for weeks. Bill Rennie of the Retailers Association of Massachusetts wouldn't say nobody will be camping on a sidewalk this evening. It's just that many of the best deals have already been available online. You know, we've been living kind of in Black Friday now for the better part of two or three weeks While it's not that sort of singular event that it once was, it is still, you know, a very, very important day. Rennie says retailers are expecting a 10 percent increase in holiday sales, though that's largely offset by high inflation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Amazon is spending $26 million for two properties in the central Massachusetts towns of Grafton and Westboro. Amazon has not said what the buildings will be used for, but according to the Worcester Business Journal, the purchases were made through the company's data services arm. It's 8.45. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. This Thanksgiving, we're thinking about some of the people farthest away from us. Think really far, like Six, out of this world. Five, four stage engines start. Three, two, one. Boosters in ignition. And liftoff of Artemis 1. We rise together back to the moon and beyond. That was NASA's Artemis 1 rocket taking flight last week. Launch director Charlie Blackwell Thompson spoke to her team at the Kennedy Space Center just after liftoff. You were part of a first. Didn't come along very often. Once in a career, maybe. But we are all part of something incredibly special, the first launch of Artemis. 
Right now, there are no astronauts in the capsule, just a few mannequins. But the Artemis mission hopes to put the first woman and first person of color on the moon by 2025. We heard from one of the astronauts on the Artemis team last week, Christina Koch. We're going to be answering the biggest philosophical questions of our time. If we can get to Mars, talking about whether or not we're alone in the universe, putting perspective on our place in the universe, and the fact that we are willing to devote ourselves to answering those questions collectively is the important part about this Artemis mission. Sure, those kinds of deep questions might be important to humankind. We here at Morning Edition have other priorities, and we're going to play an extra piece of that interview now to get into the Thanksgiving spirit. Remember, there are a few Americans spending their holiday on the International Space Station. Christina Koch holds the record for the single longest space flight by a woman. So before my co-host Leila Fadel could let her go, she just had to ask about Turkey. Did you spend Thanksgiving in space? I did. It's fun to think that actually almost every holiday that was, I was in space and I got to experience <laughs> in space. And I think the important part about that for me is that community is what you make it. And for me, being able to celebrate all those holidays with my crewmates, being able to share the excitement, even with the ground teams through video, uh, we used to do performances for them of holiday music mm. and just Taking our traditions, applying them in a new place, really brings out the humanity in all that we do. Um, even though there are such a huge technical innovation and amazing challenges we overcome to do human spaceflight, at the core of it all is that human. And that's really what the holidays in space brought back to me. But what's it like in space? I mean, I'm assuming you can't fry a turkey or like spend your day roasting. I don't know. It's a great point. So I actually really enjoyed cooking in space in the limited ways that we can. You're mm -hmm. exactly right. Typically everything we do is either an MRE style or it's a rehydrated in a little plastic package. But in the limited ways that we can prepare food, we definitely did that because of the community aspect, you know, that it kind of brings. So um, we have a food warmer, which is, doesn't actually cook like an oven might, but if you stick food in there for long enough, you can do things like roast onions, roast garlic. We did get some of those fresh supplies up every now and again on a cargo supply vehicle. So we would save them for the holidays. And I uh, definitely roasted onions, garlic, and turkey for my crewmates. That was astronaut Christina Koch speaking with my co-host Leila Fadel about what's on the Thanksgiving table in space. You're listening to Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And this is WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiar. So we're joined now by Deepa Fernandez from here and now to tell us what they'll be talking about today. Deepa, good morning. Hey, Jack, and happy Thanksgiving to you. Happy Thanksgiving. Um, Thank you. And to everyone as well, we've got a big show today. Um, we're going to be looking at some discrimination in the National Football League. Big football day, right, Jack? Yeah. Everybody's going to be watching football today. Well, we're going to just take a different slice and look at the fact that uh, it's very hard for a black coach to get the top job 
in the NFL. Mm -hmm. That's a a big Washington Post investigation. So we're going to dive into that. Also, today starts, well, this is kind of the season of giving. um, And we're going to look give you some warnings about some of the charity scams out there to watch out for as you make your charitable donations. And there's some joy. Um, Robin will be bringing us a a segment on snow geese. If that is intriguing (laughs) to you, you need to tune in to Here and Now. You can hear it at noon today, Deepa. Thanks. Thanks, Jack. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, catering diplomatic receptions, corporate celebrations, milestone events, and public galas in Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Artisanal cuisine and a focus on logistics. Uncommonfeasts.com. Gather around. Let's feast. Join WBUR for a Boston holiday tradition like no other, our annual live reading of A Christmas Carol on Tuesday evening, December 20th. Your favorite WBUR voices perform the classic story, live at the Omni Parker House in Boston. Proceeds benefit Rosie's Place, a sanctuary for women in need. Details at WBUR.org slash events. Come out for the season and Rosie's Place. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. Two industries clash over a new technology. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Benishor, in for David Brancaccio. There has been an ongoing fight between two big industries in the U.S., aviation and telecom. The fight is over high-speed 5G cell phone networks. Telecom companies are rolling out 5G, including around airports, ideally, but airlines and plane manufacturers say that could affect their equipment. The 5G rollout around airports has already been delayed because of this opposition. It was supposed to happen this year. Now it's set for next year. The aviation industry wants to delay it again. Marketplace's Matt Levin has the story. The feud between big telecom and the aviation industry is all about altimeters, relatively tiny devices that tell pilots how high they're flying. It's possible 5G could mess up altimeters, especially for older models, and new models ain't exactly cheap. In the range of about $18,000. Anthony Rios, president of Free Flight Systems, says the chip shortage may make new altimeters hard to come by. These are the same ones that a year ago or less were plaguing the automobile industry are the same ones we're using here. The aviation industry says supply chain issues mean planes won't have the right equipment for next summer when Verizon and AT&T self-imposed limits on 5G are set to expire. Hassan Shahidi is with the Flight Safety Foundation. The plan is and has been to try to do this as expeditiously as possible for all those aircraft to be retrofitted. But if full 5G around airports is delayed again, it won't just be telecom companies and travelers that are frustrated, says Harold Feld with the broadband advocacy group Public Knowledge. If you look at who lives near airports, we are talking about low income and communities of color, people who are on the wrong side of the digital divide. The Federal Aviation Administration has pushed for another delay to 5G, but no formal postponement has been announced. I'm Matt Levin for Marketplace. The mayor of the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv, says most of the city is still without electricity, and many people have no running water, a day after the latest Russian attacks on critical infrastructure. Engineers are working to restore service there and in other regions where the services have been knocked out. 
Some good news in central Ukraine, 3,000 miners who had been stuck underground during the outages have been freed. From Kyiv, the BBC's Jessica Parker reports. This morning, 70% of Kyiv remains without electricity, while many also have no water. In the southern city of Mykolaiv, people have been urged to save as much electricity as possible, while in central Ukraine, a hospital switched to running off generators as doctors carried out two kidney transplants. The fear is that Moscow will keep carrying out such strikes through the winter. It's led to renewed calls by Ukraine for the West to send more air defence systems. The attacks also led to massive outages in neighbouring Moldova. That was Jessica Parker reporting from Kyiv for our editorial partner in the BBC. U.S. markets are closed for Thanksgiving. Elsewhere in the world, the FTSE in London is up two-tenths percent. The DAX in Germany is up seven-tenths percent. Hong Kong's Hang Seng index closed up a tenth of a percent, as did Japan's Nikkei. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business is dedicated to simplifying the process of buying supplies. And by Fidelity Investments, introducing Fidelity Income Planning. Build a plan for income that lasts. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. A significant amount of greenhouse gas emissions comes from wasted food. It rots in landfills and creates methane gas. The EPA estimates wasted and lost food create the greenhouse gas equivalent of 42 coal-powered power plants every year. A third of all food in the U.S. ends up being wasted. Today, we talk to a business owner who sees in that a business opportunity. Anna Hammond is CEO of Matriarch Foods. She is what is called an upcycler, trying to divert wasted food from landfills. Anna, good morning. Good morning. So you are in the food upcycling business. What is the food upcycling business? So upcycling is really making all food reach its highest value, which is feeding people. And upcyclers take food that would otherwise have gone to waste and they make products out of it. And that is anything from, you know, what we do, which is was upcycling vegetable surplus and remnants to upcycling spent grain from from making beer. How'd you come up with this idea? Well, I mean, I have to say, like, I grew up in a family where we didn't waste anything. My mother's family were political refugees and, you know, they came to this country with very little. Uh, so the mentality of not wasting was was very uh, present in my youth. But before uh, launching this company, I built a healthy eating program for youth and families living in public housing in New York City. And part of that work involved brokering relationships with farmers in the Hudson Valley to get their surplus plus vegetables to these community centers. And there was just an enormous amount of food going to waste on farms, farmers needing extra income. And then all of these people with, you know, suffering from diet-related illness, wanting to make better food for their families, but not having access to it. And sort of the enormous amount of waste and the enormous amount of need really was the inspiration for launching Matriarch. Surveys show the number one problem or concern for small businesses is inflation right now. Have you had to raise prices or is your supply chain kind of unique in not being exposed to that? 
I mean, I don't think there's any supply chain that's immune to inflation, unfortunately. But I think that the nature of our supply chain certainly means that, you know, some of our ingredients are less than they would be if we were using firsts or not using remnants. But I also think that the increased awareness of food waste as a negative environmental impact, in addition to the increased awareness around hunger worldwide, really just brought more attention to what we were already doing. And so I would say for us, there's been an increase in activity for our business. Anna Hammond is the founder and CEO of Matriarch Foods, a social impact business that works towards sustainability in the food system through upcycling. Thank you so much. Thank you. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars, and on this Thanksgiving, we'd like to thank our behind-the-scenes crew working here this Thanksgiving day, our technical director, Michaela Varela, senior technical director, Mike Toda, producer, Stevie Chapman, and executive producer, Dan Guzman. We'd like to thank you for listening in as well. It's currently 34 degrees in Boston, coming up on 9 o'clock. BBC is next. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The fog of war, an impenetrable tangle of red tape, and how an Afghan interpreter, with the help of his friend, a U.S. Marine, cut through the chaos and escaped Kabul just before the city fell to the Taliban last year. We'll hear their story and their view of what's happening in Afghanistan now. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join us on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.